Well, we're still trucking in Joshua. This week in Joshua chapter 11. Last week we finished up Joshua chapter 10. And um, as you're flipping to Joshua chapter 11, I just want to sort of recap where we've come from. Uh, The last two Sundays we talked about God's faithfulness in the midst of our consequences. Joshua had made a stupid, sinful covenant, and yet, as he faced the repercussions of that, God was right there with him, and even miraculous, in delivering him. That was chapter 10. What we didn't see last week was the, the last half of chapter 10, where we see Joshua and the Israelites just going on a rampage. I mean, they just wiped out kingdom after kingdom, not just the five that initially came against them. They just went and had victory after victory after victory. If you want to sometime read that last half of chapter 10, it's amazing. And it's summed up for us in uh, Joshua chapter 10, verse 42. It's just summed up. Joshua captured all these kings and their lands at one time because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. And that's what we've seen this whole book. We've seen God fighting for his people, for Israel. In the beginning of the book, um, if you can kind of visualize the geography of this a little bit, the promised land is, is stretches out kind of long and tall. And Joshua came in to the middle of the promised land at the beginning of the book. Jericho, all that's in the middle of the promised land. God was victorious for them. And then this chapter 10, armies of the south were coming up against them. So they went south. They destroyed all those armies. Now in chapter 11, we're going to see them go north. And they're completing the conquest. Remember what's going on here. God is bringing his special people into the promised land where he will have a people devoted to him. That's what's happening. Okay, so I just, I want to just dive in. Now that we're back into the context of what we're doing, I want to dive into chapter 11, starting at verse 1. Then it came about when Jabin, king of Hazar, These words are so hard to pronounce. When this king heard of it, that he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaph, and to the kings who were of the north in the hill country, and in the Arabah south of Chinneroth, and in the lowland, and on the heights of Dor on the west, to the Canaanite on the east and on the west, and the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Jebusite, and the hill country, and the Hivite at the foot of Hermon, in the land of Mizpah. They came out, they and all their armies with them, as many as the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. So all of these kings, having agreed to meet, came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. Okay, if you, if you were able to battle through those weird names, what's happening here is a repeat of what happened at the beginning of chapter 10. The kings of the land see Israel just plowing through all the kingdoms of the land. And they respond by saying, well, let's all get together and see if we can fight this thing. In spite of the fact that everybody has failed. And I hope the question is rumbling in your mind, why do they, why do they not just submit Why do they not do like Rahab and and try to find mercy? And that's what we're going to get to in this sermon. Um, We see here at this point in verse 4, 
as many people as the sand that is on the seashore with many horses and chariots. This is the largest force yet that Israel has had to face. Now, if you're like me, that doesn't mean anything to you at this point. We've seen that if God fights for Israel, they're going to win. It doesn't matter if it's one person or if it's a Brazilian people. If God doesn't fight for them, they're going to lose. It doesn't matter if it's one person or however many. So the fact that this is as many people as there are pebbles of sand on the beach, it, it doesn't even matter anymore at this point. I don't know if you're coming to, the, as we study Joshua, if you're getting to that point where you see that it just doesn't even matter, the opposition. All that matters is if God is fighting for us. I hope so, because I'm kind of numb at this point to where I'm like, it doesn't matter. It's God they're fighting against. Okay? So let's leap back in here. This huge, the, the largest force yet is coming. In verse 6, we see what God says to Joshua. He says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid because of them. For tomorrow at this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Again, we see God coming to Joshua, whispering in his ear, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. How many times have we seen that in this book so far? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Joshua's just a man like we are. Even though he has seen God victorious over and over and over again, God has to keep saying, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Um, This isn't the point of the sermon this morning, but he whispers the same thing to us. Don't be afraid. I know many of you are facing challenges right now, probably much of which I don't even understand, I don't know, but God is saying to his people all the time, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, trust me, don't be afraid. That's what he's saying to Joshua here. So I want to read a lengthy portion just to unfold what happens, starting at verse 7. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came upon them suddenly. By the waters of Miram and attacked them. Just to break away, this must have been surprising for these kings. If you were coming at a small army with as many people as the sand of the seashore, you would think that they would probably be running from you. But Joshua comes upon them suddenly. I doubt they saw that coming. That's just a side note. Verse 8 The Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel so that they defeated them and pursued them as far as great Sidon. And Mizrafoth Maim, and the valley of Mizpah, to the east. And they struck them until no survivor was left to them. Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. What he did to their horses was, it didn't kill them. He made them unable to run real fast. They weren't suitable for battle anymore, but they could still be used in farming, that kind of thing. That's what he did to their horses. Verse 10, then Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of all these kingdoms. They struck every person who was in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was no one left who breathed, and he burned Hazor with fire. Joshua captured all the cities of these kings and all their kings, and he struck them with the edge of the sword. And utterly destroyed them, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. However, Israel did not burn any cities that stood on their mounds except Hazor, alone which Joshua burned. All the spoil of these cities and the cattle the sons of Israel took as their plunder. But they struck every man with the edge of the sword, 
until they had destroyed them. They left no one who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Thus Joshua took all the land, the hill country, and all the Negev, all the land of Goshen, the lowland, the Arabah, the hill country of Israel and its lowland, from Mount Halak that rises towards Seir, even as far as Baalgad in the valley of Lebanon at the foot of Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them down and put them to death. Joshua waged war a long time with all these kings. And there was not a city which made peace with the sons of Israel, except the Hivites living in Gibeon. They took them all in battle. Are y'all seeing the pattern emerge here as we keep studying this book? Uh, there's a threat, or there's a people. Joshua's kind of scared. God says, don't be afraid. He reassures them. They go in. If they're obedient to God, they demolish everybody. That seems to be the recurring theme. Um, and I hope you're not getting bored with that theme. This is how the book is laid out. Israel is just one foot in front of the other, stepping their way into the land, destroying everybody like God said. In this chapter, we're going to leave a lot out that's here, that's, that's big, most of which we've covered in previous sermons. So if you're, if you're wondering about something that I'm not covering this week, it might be in a previous sermon that we have on CD if you want to, if you want to look into that. This week, we are given a gift. This gift comes in the next verse, in verse 20. All this stuff, all this carnage, all these battles that we're seeing, Everything we've seen so far is, is just what's happened, just the facts of what's happened. In verse 20, we get to peek beneath the surface. We get to see what's going on in the heart of those people who continually stand against God. Remember we said at the beginning, why do these people keep fighting? They have seen that God is ruthless in crushing his enemies. Why don't they just submit? Why don't they do like Rahab and just ask for mercy? Or why don't they at least do like the Gibeonites and try to trick their way out of it? But no, instead they keep coming back to fight. Why? Well, he tells us why. In verse 20. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts to meet Israel in battle in order that he might utterly destroy them, that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Let that sink in. We have taken in so much scripture already. Just let the, the fact of this sink in. Why do these people keep fighting? For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts, to meet Israel in battle, in order that he might utterly destroy them, that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them just as the Lord had commanded Moses. This should, I think, shock us a bit. This should be like a bucket of cold water in our face at this point. Now that we're getting to peek into what's happening in the heart, we're seeing something shocking. You know, we, I think we've come to accept that God is sovereign in control over the outcomes of these battles. You know, if he fights for Israel, they're going to win. If he doesn't, they're going to lose. We, I think, have accepted that. But here we see that God is also seemingly... Sovereign over the beginnings of these battles, over the hardness of heart of the enemy. We've talked about in Joshua how when you read a historical book like this, 
you get the most benefit if you read it thinking, what does this reveal to me about the character of God? Because the character of God does not change. You know, I'm not Joshua, you're not Joshua. We can't put ourselves in his shoes and accept those promises necessarily like he's talking straight to us. But we can see how God operates. We can see his character. What does this tell us about our God? We're going to need to take some time to tackle this. What we've come across is, is a, a vein of gold here as we're, as we're mining. And we need to take some time to dig out everything that we can. And there is gold here. It's going to take this Sunday and next Sunday. So it's going to be another two-parter. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. Um, and the payoff is really going to be next Sunday. So you need to come next Sunday. And if you can't, again, we record them, so it's not the end of the world. The payoff is going to be next Sunday, but there's gold here. But we're going to have to take some time. And before we can really understand this, we need to understand what is the heart anyway. We're going to spend a lot of time today just figuring out what is the heart. So we can understand what it means in Joshua that it was of the Lord to harden the hearts of the people of the land. So I've spent a lot of time, this was a difficult sermon to prepare. And here's the definition that I've come up for biblically of what is the heart. The heart is your identity. Your heart is your identity. Your heart is who you are. That's my definition. And I know you're thinking, we don't pay you for your definitions. What does the Bible say? Well, that's a good thought. I appreciate that. <laughs> Calm down. According to my estimation, there are roughly 957 occurrences of the word heart in the Bible. About 957, roughly. At least in the, in the King James translation. My Bible has 949 pages. So that means on average, this idea of the heart is mentioned a little more than once per page in, in your Bible. Look at your Bible. The idea of the heart runs all through that. And in all those, some 957 occurrences, there is no clear definition given for it about what God means for the heart. He doesn't say, by the way, when I say heart, I mean this. So what we have is 957 times that we have to look at context and figure out what exactly does he mean here? Because apparently the people who originally read this didn't need a definition. And I know that most of you probably didn't think you needed a definition. You'd think, well, heart. It either means that beating muscle in my chest or it means what I love people with. But I want to try to prove to you as best I can that I think the best biblical definition for the heart is that it is, it is you. The heart is your identity, who you are. So we're going to look at 957 passages of Scripture this morning. I have a 957-point sermon. I'm just kidding. <laughs> if anyone was paying attention, I'm just kidding. I have wrestled. I've, I've gotten down to three Scriptures I want to share with you. Um, they're not going to be on PowerPoint. I just want you to listen to these. You, I, want you, I don't want you flipping to them so much as just hearing God's voice in these as I read them to you. But the first one I want to share with you is in 1 Samuel, chapter 16. Um, during this time in 1 Samuel, God is trying to select a king for Israel. 
He's sending the prophet Samuel to go and, and select the man that will be king. So Samuel goes to the family of Jesse. That's where he's supposed to go to select the king. And standing right in front of him is this tall, regal-looking man. That's where we pick up. I'm just going to read one verse here in 16.7. He's looking at a guy named, named Eliab who looks kingly. And God says, But the Lord told Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It's very simple. There's just a a gaping difference between how we see people and how God sees people. We see all we can see, which is the externals. You look at me and you see what I look like, what I wear. You, You see what I, you don't see what I say, but you sense what I say. What you see, what I do, the external things. That's how we see. That's all we have. That's all we can see. But that's not what God sees. He sees through all that to the heart. And here in this case, it meant that Eliab, who was the natural choice to be king because he was tall. You know, it was said of George Washington that he had to be the leader of something because he was always the tallest person in the room. And if you look at leaders that men elect or pick, they're usually tall. They, they just look like they ought to lead. Because it's the best we can do. I mean, you know, we think we're so smart, but really it comes down to, well, he's tall. He's probably capable. <laughs> but here it meant that, that God wanted Samuel to go, and we see he selects David, who's just basically a boy. Not the natural selection, but God sees the heart. And you know that it's true. You know this is how you see people. I mean, think about you're in your car. You're Maybe you ladies, you're in your car and you're waiting for your husband to come out of the grocery store. I know it never really happens that way because we don't know our way around the grocery store. But for the sake of the illustration, you're in your car and the doors are unlocked and you're listening to the radio. And you catch somebody in your rearview mirror walking up beside your car. Sometimes you just say, oh, somebody's walking up. Sometimes you, as discreetly as possible, click the automatic lock button. And you base that decision whether you're going to click the lock button or not on what that person looks like. You know, if it looks like Lee Jones walking up, you scramble for the Get her locked. And if you're in business, you, you can't help yourself. You size people up when they walk in by what they look like, what, how they're dressed. You know, these, this is what we have. This is all we have that we can do. But reality is the world as God sees it. And who you are is who you are as God sees you. It's not who we are from what other people think, how they see us. That's not who you are. Your heart is who you are. How many women recognize what this is? It's a magazine. <laughs> Great. <No. laughs> it's a magazine. Um, not this particular one necessarily, but you see these all the time. You go to the shopping the shopping mall. <laughs> you go to the store and you're checking out, and these are just all over the wall there. And many of them are aimed at helping you look beautiful, aren't you? This is a health magazine here. It's the best thing I can find. You know, even on here, shrink your belly fast. Amazing results in just five days. 
gorgeous skin and hair for under $10. All these different headlines on these magazines about how to look beautiful. And it's not just magazines, it's products too. I used to work at Super Target. Actually, one of the best jobs I've ever had. I used to work at Super Target and I would you know, bring out new stock and, and, and straighten things up. And whenever I would have to go to the beauty product area and try to put stuff up, it's impossible. The amount of different products that we have to look beautiful is insane. I would stand there with this bottle of anti-frizz <laughs> solution or whatever you call it. And you look at this giant aisle of beauty products. And there's nothing like that. But there's a billion other things to look beautiful. And there's endless products and methods to look beautiful. But I want to read to you one scripture. This is for you women. And you men who want to look beautiful. <laughs> First Peter 3. God says to Peter, Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. We have a certain appearance that's precious in the sight of man. In the sight of God is the hidden quality of the inner person of the heart. So while we have all this stuff at our disposal to look beautiful, you don't see that many products to be beautiful. And some of you women are struggling to look beautiful. And there's nothing wrong with your appearance. But work on being beautiful. The inner quality of the heart that doesn't perish. That's what God's looking at. God's not looking at how not frizzy your hair is. He's looking at the inner quality, the inside. That's what's beautiful in His sight. You may ever see Shallow Hell as a perfect illustration of this. If you've ever seen it, I should just put that up and we've watched that. <laughs> Your heart is who you are. Okay, another one. I have, I have three of these verses I want to share with you. This one comes from Proverbs. I just want you to listen to it. It's, again, not on your PowerPoint. It's not. Uh, just listen to it. Proverbs 27. Verse 19. You can get that. <laughs> Proverbs 27. Verse 19. This is beautiful. It's so simple. As in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects man. You have to kind of think about it to get it. As in water, face reflects face. Like if you're looking in a, in a calm pool of water, and you stick your face there, you see face. As in water, face reflects face, so in the heart of man reflects man. Now, back then, they didn't have mirrors on every wall like we do, so water made more sense to them. Modern-day translation might have said, as in a mirror, your face reflects your face, but your heart reflects yourself. How many of you, I actually want you to raise your hand. It'll get the blood flowing. It'll be good for you. How many of you looked at a mirror this morning? I can tell by looking at you the ones who didn't anyway. I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm kidding. You all look like you looked in a mirror. I'm pretty sure everybody looked in a mirror this morning. A little mean this morning.
for some reason. <laughs> we all look in the mirror all the time. We know what our faces look like pretty much. I only know what the front of my face looks like really, which is good because front on my face is pretty symmetrical. To the side, it's like, I, I know now from talking to people, that like on this side, I look like one person. On this side, I look like another person. Because my face isn't exactly symmetrical. You guys are going to be paying attention to that the whole rest of the sermon. But we all look, we all know what we look like. I, another one of my jobs was I worked at the mattress firm, as I mentioned. And the store I worked at the most, it was all glass um, on the outside. So I could see out beautifully. At certain parts of the day, if you walked by, all you could see was your own reflection. You couldn't see inside to whoever was in there. And everybody that walked by stole a glimpse, a glimpse at themselves. I mean, you don't always have a reflection of your entirety anyway, so you want to make sure everything's normal. Everybody did. And not just the women. I bet you women think that, that we guys don't, don't look at our reflection. We do. We just don't know what to do about it. Like you guys did. But everybody, male, female, they look. You look. You know you look. Think about the things that you have looked in to see what you look like. Oven, glass, I don't know, anything. You look to see what you look like. But that is not who you are. When's the last time you looked into your heart to see who you are? We look all the time to see what do I look like. But the same way that our face is reflected in a mirror, if we could look into our hearts, ourselves would be reflected. We would see who we are. Who are you? Has anyone ever even asked you that? Who are you? Anyway. I saw a movie one time where it was supposed to be like a self-help group and the new guy was there and, and the leader of the group said, tell everybody who you are. Introduce yourself. And he said, well, I'm such and such. I work at such and such. And he said, no, 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 not your name and where you work. Who are you? And he said, I have a guy who lives here. He said, no, not your gender and, and your location. Who are you? And he just kept going and it was supposed to be funny. But it's actually a really good question. Who are you? Is it where you work? What you do? Is it what you look like? It's not any of those things. That's not what God looks at when he says, who are you? When he says, who is Matt Broadway? He doesn't say, well, he's pastor, husband, father. He looks in my heart and he sees who I am. One more. Isaiah 29. Again, don't bother to flip there if you would just listen to it. Isaiah 29. We're going to look at a lot of scripture this morning. Isaiah 29. Your heart is who you are. Your heart is your identity. And here, God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah to his people. And he says in verse 13, Because this people draws near to me with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me. And their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. This people draw near to me with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me. And their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Jesus refers to this too when he's talking to the really religious folks of his day, the Pharisees. In Matthew 15. He calls them hypocrites. And he says, 
Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the precepts of men. There's a difference between what we say and what we do and who we are. It's hard for us to separate because all we can see of each other is what we say and what we do. But that's not necessarily who we are. There are lots of examples in the Bible of people who said and did great things. But God was not pleased with who they were. So like I said earlier to the, to the women, don't stress so much about looking beautiful. Cultivate being beautiful. God doesn't want us to look holy and act holy. He wants us to be holy. And our hearts, because that's who we are. Your heart is your identity. Your heart is who you are. Not the things you do. And I think in churches, you know, this really was brought home to me yesterday at the conference meetings. It was from 9.30 to 3. Or 2.30. We got out early, if you can believe it. All day you're hearing report after report of information. Information. How we've spent money. What we've done. What our plans are. What number of people did such and such. Stuff we're doing. Stuff we're doing. Stuff we're doing. I was just getting sleepy. I don't think I was the only one. But the bright, shining moments of yesterday were when, for instance, Dave, Dave Ross, who led the whole thing, when he could barely even tell us through the tears about a movement among the youth in his county, people coming to Christ. And you saw for a minute his heart wasn't about doing stuff, doing stuff, reporting numbers, we're doing stuff. It was hearts coming to know Christ. He was passionate about it. And there were other examples in there too. It was overall a very encouraging day yesterday. I just, I, I worry about us. I worry about us as a church. I am concerned sometimes that I don't want us to become a people that just do stuff and do stuff and do stuff. I want us to be a people who are passionate for God and passionate for people. Amen. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with doing stuff. I just if the stuff we do is not coming from a genuine heart that is loving God and loving others, I am dead serious when I say that it is worthless. Yeah. And so people who've worked near to me probably have been frustrated with my hesitancy to do stuff. Because I, I just and maybe I'm too slow about it, but I just I want to very prayerfully make sure that we are who we should be before we start doing what we think we should do. I don't want to see us get so busy as a church that men are working harder on doing stuff for the church and neglecting being godly men and neglecting being godly husbands and fathers. I would much rather us do very little, but be a church of people who are in love with God and in love with others. And I want, I want you to think about your own heart. Who are you? I'm not asking what you do for us as a church. Who are you? Because God's not looking at what you're doing or even your situation. He's looking at who you are. That's what he wants to cultivate, your heart. I mean, you look at me. I'll use myself as an example. You see what I do. I come up here and I speak to you from God's word. You see what I wear. I wear a suit. The holy uniform of church. 
You see a pleasant smile on my face. I guess it's interpreted as pleasant. I don't know. Maybe it's creepy. I don't know. You see what I do. But you don't know what's in here. I can tell it, it would be easy for me to fake you all out. It's easy to stand up here. It's easy to, to know how to use the right you know, tone so you sound humble. But only God knows if you're really humble or if you're prideful. Only God knows if I'm up here telling you this because I love you and I want him to work in your lives. Or if I'm telling you this because I just want you to like me and pat me on the back. Only he knows. And this is a call to me to stop and say, who am I standing up in that pulpit? What's going on in here? What are my motivations here? Because that's all God cares about. That's what he's looking at. I use myself as an example because I know myself better than anybody else in here. But that goes for you too. Folks in the choir, who are you? Why are you doing what you do? Folks who teach our Sunday school, do all number of things. We have so much that we're doing. I care more about who you are than what you do. What you do will come. That stuff's going to flow naturally out of who you are. And you've heard it said before. I didn't make this up. We're human beings. We're not human doings. We're human beings, not human doings. And we exchange fruitful, joyful lives of being caught up in, in, in worshiping and loving God and loving others. We exchange all that for fruitless, frustrating lives of busyness trying to do so much. Oh, I feel bad. I feel guilty. I'm, I should do more. No, maybe not. Maybe you should slow down and peer into your heart and see yourself. See what's in there. What's going on with you? Who are you? Your heart is who you are. And I trust that many of you are thinking, well, this is a lot more difficult. It's easy to change what I do. It's not so easy to change who I am. And you're right. It is. And the, the second point I want to say about the definition of the heart, the heart is who you are. And the heart is your battlefield. Getting back to Joshua, we saw in that glimpse in verse 20, the real battle had already been going on in people's hearts before it ever went on on the battlefield. The heart is who you are. It is your battlefield. Just real quickly, I, it's time for me to wind down. Whenever Jesus taught, he always took it deeper than, than what we do to who we are. When he taught about murder, he said, yeah, don't murder. But if you're angry with your brother and you say to them, even under your breath, you idiot, you're guilty of the same sin as if you killed him. I read last night that there's a doctor who just got convicted of killing his wife by coating her calcium pills with cyanide. And everybody's like, oh, I would never do that. But what kind of hatred and anger has been rumbling in your heart? God sees that. Don't think that because you've never coated anyone's calcium pills with cyanide that the battle is won. If you have anger in your heart... Battle is still raging. His teaching about lust, he takes it deeper to the heart. He says, yes, don't commit adultery with someone who's not your spouse. But even if you look lustfully at somebody, you've already done it in your heart. The holiness that we're called to is so much harder, so much deeper than just what we do, what we don't do. It's who we are. Okay, I want some actual audience participation here. What are the two greatest commandments? 
Yes, I was hoping one of the youths would be the, the first one. Thank you. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. The two greatest commandments upon these hinge everything else in the law. Think about those commandments. Love God. Love others. That's heart stuff. He didn't say, go to church, sing some songs. That's doing stuff. He said, love. Love God. Is it, there's a difference between singing and loving. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's a difference between taking a meal to someone and actually loving them. You can take a meal to someone without loving them. You can. It's true. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with doing that stuff. I'm just saying if your heart is not loving, in God's eyes, it, it wasn't really worth anything. The battle between heaven and hell is raging right now. And it's not in Iraq. It's not in the culture wars. It's not in legislation. Oh, are they going to legalize gay marriage? Should they? Should they not? What about abortion? That's not where the battle of heaven and hell is really raging. It's raging in your heart right now. And in my heart right now. Last verse, Proverbs. Where's Proverbs? Proverbs 4.23. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. What is springing up in your life? Is it joy and peace and love? Or is it bitterness, frustration, anger, depression? What's springing up into your lives? I bet every counseling scenario I've had so far, those who came in thought they were going to be talking about something different than what, they talk, than what we were talking about before they left. Because we want to do behavior modification. I'm, I'm having trouble with the sin. I just want to stop it. But that's never what Jesus does. He traces that back into the heart because that's the, the, the spring of life. What you say and what you do is flowing from what's in there. And we just want to like screw on a Brita filter and just filter what we do and what we say and just ignore what's in our hearts. But the battle is in your heart. That's what we need to address. Next week, we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of this. But I want you to think about you. Who are you? What's in your heart? This week, I just want you to take some time. You need some quiet time to pray through this. Lord, reveal my heart to me. Who am I? Think of the problems in your lives, the, the struggles with sins in your lives, the struggle with emotions that you can't control. And I don't mean this to be controversial, but before... You go to the doctor for that pill, for the emotion you can't control. Try to figure out what's happening in your heart. Because that pill is only going to control the symptom. The disease is in there. Pills don't go in there. There's something in your heart going on. That's what God wants to change. That's where God wants to work. We've got to let him in there. Next week we're going to talk about God's control over our heart. Because this, I think this frames that verse 20 in a whole new light. That all of this... That's what God controlled for those people when it says that it was of him to harden those hearts. That's what he was controlling. That is, that is huge. Next week we're going to talk about just how much does he control there and just how much are we responsible for there.
Next week is going to be good. Please come next week. Now, I just want to say a prayer. I know we got a song to sing still. I just want to say a prayer that the Holy Spirit would seal these things and be working in our hearts this week. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your word that was read and studied, that you would work through that, that you would enable our memories to remember it through the week as we drive to work, as we're laying in bed, as in the quiet moments of the day, that we would turn to you and say, Lord, what is in my heart? I haven't looked at my heart in years, decades, ever. Who am I? What, these struggles in my life, help me to trace them into my heart and see what's in there. Lord, please make us people of prayer. I, only you can change our hearts. And that's what you desire to do. Um, so I pray for these folks this week. Watch over them. Keep them safe. Protect them. Work in our hearts. Bring them back next week when a lot of these things will be much more clear. And I thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.